Well, good morning. So good to be home. Our family, my wife, Ember, our kiddos, Eden and Theo, had a wonderful trip to Texas, and uh, yet we're glad to be back home with our church family and back in this wonderful Northeast Ohio weather. Uh, what an event, and uh, what, a, what a great time to be alive, what a great time to be a part of this great church, Pleasant Valley Church. I do want to extend a word of thankfulness both to our elders, David and Doug, who did such a tremendous job last week leading us around the table, and then our brother Doug bringing such a great word to us, inner strength in 2023. And I hope that you've already sensed the strength of our great God in and through you in this new year. Happy New Year to you, as I've not had opportunity to tell you that just yet. If you are a guest with us, my name is Jordan Johnson, have the joy of serving as our lead pastor, one of our elders here at PVC. One of the things we love to do here at PVC is walk through books of the Bible. We believe when the Word of God speaks, God is talking, and so therefore we would be fools to do just some topical, grab a theme, grab seven or eight verses and try to prove that. Rather, we would let the Bible lead and let the Bible make the rules and give us the uh, outline and the understanding of what it is that God wants us to hear. And so if you have your Bible, Ruth is where we're going to be. We began this series back during Advent, and in God's providence, our family got the flu. So we set Ruth on the side until we finished 2023, and now here we are in Ruth chapter 3. Next week, God willing, we'll do Ruth chapter 4, and then beginning the last Sunday of this month, we'll be in the book of James, and we'll walk through that all the way to the summer probably, take a break for Easter, Good Friday, all there, and then uh, in the fall, we'll begin a new series through another book as well. So Ruth chapter 3, if you have your Bible, go there with me, and uh, let's pray together and ask God for His help as we look to His Word. Our God, we bless Your name today, namely for being the Father that You are, the Savior that You are, the Helper that You are. We thank You that it is so good to be Your sheep, to be under Your care, to feast upon the green grass that you told us that you would put us in. And Lord, we know there is no greener grass than the 66 books that we have in our Old and New Testament that you, God, preserved through the ages so that we could have a copy, not only in our own language, but an individual copy and commentaries and, and great men and women of God who help us interpret it and apply it. So, Lord, thank you that we have been born in such a time where we have so much access to your word, and yet, God, our heart breaks for those who have not only no access to your word, but they have no access to the gospel. We're talking three million people at least who've never heard the name of Jesus one time. And God, we pray for our missionary efforts. We thank you for so many right now who are um, in difficult settings, all because your Spirit has enabled them to go and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, and we're so grateful for them. We pray that you would strengthen them. We pray, God, that you would give us as a body here a global vision, God, of who you are, that you are a God of the nations, because one day every tribe and tongue and nation will be around the throne worshiping the Lamb. 
And we know, Lord, we did not get into your family, but by your gracious adoption. We did not earn our way there. Uh, We didn't merit our way there. We weren't better than our neighbor. We weren't smarter than our brother or sister. God, it is by your grace and your grace alone that we are saved. And we pray that you would grant the gracious gift of salvation to someone here today. God, that you would cause them to be born again, that they would see the riches of Christ, that they would call upon the name of the Lord, that they would be saved. Lord, we know that our days are not promised. You give them one day at a time. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow may never come. So all we have is today. So help us by your Spirit to feast upon this wonderful 18 verses in Ruth chapter 3. Help us draw out proper meaning, proper application from a, a real good, hard look at it and asking you, God, to come now and give us the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for my wife and I and our children. Thank you for getting us back home here to Parma to be able to serve alongside our dear brothers and sisters here at Pleasant Valley Church. Thank you for so many that serve in this body, that this has never, ever in our existence been a one-man, two-man, three-man, one-woman, two-women, three. It's been a, a group effort, God, for us here at PVC, and we pray for those who this is their first time to be with us. God, we, we recognize that your sovereign hand um, has chosen to make us be born where we're at and to place us where we are, so we pray, God, that they would sense, newcomers, the love that we have for you, the love that we have for them, and God, that our hospitality here at PVC would always be shaped by the good news of the gospel, so that your name would be hallowed, so that your kingdom would come on earth here now as it is in heaven. This we pray in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus. And everybody said, you know, many a single lady is looking for a good man. Many a single lady is looking for a good man. And the reason many single ladies are looking for a good man is because they're kind of hard to come by. All the single ladies could say, amen. That was true in the days of the book of Ruth. And it is true today. It's hard to find a good man. In Ruth chapter 2, the last time we were together, we met a mighty, mighty good man named Boaz. And Boaz modeled in his character all the attributes that would make a good man a good man. And it has been a minute since we have been in the book of Ruth, and so I do want to recap very briefly to bring us up to speed of what got us where we're at in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 18 today. Chapter 1 of Ruth, we met a family from Bethlehem, the same Bethlehem that our Lord Jesus would be born in some thousand years later, and the father's name was Elimelech, the mom's name, Naomi, two boys, Milan and Kilion. And they are living in a time where there was a severe famine in the land of Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. It was the Costco of the ancient world. It's where you went to get your food. 
And there was such a famine in the land that the family had to make a decision. Are we going to stay here and possibly die, or are we going to leave and go somewhere to greener pastures so that we can eat? Well, out of an act of faithlessness, Elimelech, the father, led his family from Bethlehem to the godless place of Moab. The Moabites were a group of individuals who hated God, who did not want to fear God, who hated the people of God, but it was a very luscious place where there was a lot of grain, a lot of vegetation, a lot of food, and so they went there. Now, it is very easy to armchair quarterback their decision, but Elimelech should have stayed put. He should have kept his family there and should have cried out to God for mercy. You remember, the book of Ruth is in the context of the book of Judges, where the Bible says that in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this was a time when people had largely forgotten their God, and Elimelech followed suit. Well, when they get there, not long after they get there, a tragedy happens. Elimelech drops dead. He dies. Well, not long after that, his boys, Milan and Kilion, marry Moabite women, which was a very, it was a no-no. God said, don't marry foreign women. So they married Moabite women. One, Ruth, book, the name of the book of Ruth, and the other, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. Well, the unthinkable happens because soon after they marry Milan and Kilion, they also drop dead. And so chapter 1 of Ruth ends in a really dire place. Naomi is left in a foreign land, and the only people she barely knows is her foreign daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And so she pleads with them. She's like, ladies, daughters, stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because somehow Naomi got word Uh, the shelves at Costco have bread on them again. Bethlehem has been revisited by the hand of God. And so Naomi says, I'm going back home. And then she pleads with Orpah and pleads with Ruth, there's no husband for you there. Stay here and find you a Moabite man. Don't come back. Well, Orpah does the logical thing and goes and probably finds a Moabite man. She stays there. But Ruth, it says at the end of chapter 1, it's a very strong Hebrew word. It says that, that she clung to her mother-in-law. And she practiced what we came to know as the hesed of God, his loyal love, his loving kindness, the kind of love that says, even when you don't want me, I'm coming after you. Even when you turn your back on me or spit in my face, I'm going to keep pursuing you with all the energy that I got. And Ruth is used by God to love her very bitter mother-in-law. Anybody, of, any of you know a bitter mother-in-law? Don't say amen. But she was a very bitter mother-in-law, and what we saw in chapter one is that God will meet people even when they're bitter and broken. He'll meet you. You may be bitter today. You may be broken today. And yet God says, I'll meet you right there. That's one of his specialties, is to show up and show out and flex his muscle when you're broken and you're bitter. But don't be surprised how he might do it, because he did it in Naomi's life through a human instrument named Ruth. 
And so chapter 1 ends that way. And then you come into chapter 2, and this dynamic duo of Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. And you know how small towns are. People are going to talk. People are going to gossip. And so they, it caused quite a stir when they show back up, and they say, is that Naomi? Oh, is that her? And you remember Naomi corrected them. said, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. She said, because God's hand is against me. I went away. I left here, and I had a husband, and I had sons, and all was great. And I went to Moab, and I've come back, and I'm empty, and I'm bitter, and I'm broken, and I'm mad, and I'm upset, and yet God met her. Well, they're hungry. They have nothing to eat, so Ruth asked her mother-in-law, could I go glean in the field and get us something to eat? Gleaning, by the way, was this ancient practice that God put into place so that the poor would always be cared for, Jew or Gentile. He said, when you go glean in the field, make sure you leave some crumbs in the corner so that when the poor come by, they can gather some food and they'll have something to eat as well. Obviously, Naomi told Ruth that. Ruth didn't know that. She's a Moabite. She doesn't know the law. But Naomi probably told Ruth, hey, I know we can get some food. And Naomi said, can I go? She said, go. So she gleans. And then it says, Ruth chapter 2, unline your Bible, verse 3, just so happened. Just so happened. The author wants us to feel this tension, this 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 what appears to be a human luck or human chance or human good fortune. And yet it literally means that God made it where the field that she's going to go glean in is none other than the field of Boaz. Now, Boaz is a man of integrity, justice, mercy, generosity, hospitality. It's what makes him such a good man. It's, he's a man who looks a whole lot like Jesus, Boaz does. But at the end of chapter 2, it doesn't end the way that you think it would, because it says, and Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. And it leaves you coming into chapter 3 thinking, well, are they going to have a second date? Because remember they had a date at the barley grill, they had some roasted grain. You know, think Carabas and that oil that you get the wonderful bread. And by the way, let me just say this about Carabas for just a second. When I brought this up last time, that next week, you know who you are, but there was a Carabas gift card that was given to me, and I just want you to know that you're, if you're in this room, thank you very much. We have enjoyed the benefits of wonderful food at Carabas, but this is what kind of meal they had, and you end chapter two wondering, are they going to have a second date? There's this budding romance going on now between Ruth and Boaz, but it just simply says Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. Remember, there is no social media. There is no dating site. There is no Bethlehem Bachelorette TV show. And even if Ruth could advertise that she was looking for a husband, what would she put there? Maybe it would say, eligible bachelorette looking for a husband that would take care of me, watch this now, and my mother-in-law. Most guys are not going to jump at that opportunity. But Boaz will. Because Boaz is not your stereotypical dude. By the way, let me put a word in for you single guys before we jump into this text. Do not dismiss pursuing a young lady or an older lady just because she has some additional burdens 
that are now going to be your burdens. God may want to use you, brother, to be a Boaz in her life. So please understand, there is much sensuality we're about to see. If this is your first time here to PVC, welcome, glad you're here. But I just want you to know, some of the things in this text might make you feel uncomfortable today. It might not, but it, but it might. It might make you feel uncomfortable. But what I want to say on the front end is the author has the sensuality in here because he wants you to see, it may not have been a he, we don't even know who wrote the book of Ruth, but the author wants you to see that in the midst of the sensuality that is here, this is a very pure couple. There is purity in Ruth, and there is purity in Boaz. They're going to have, have an opportunity in a moment to have a really steamy time together. And yet, they choose purity. Would it would have been a lot easier to just say, well, but this is a very rare couple. You're going to see, we need more guys like Boaz. We need more young ladies like Ruth. You're going to see this was a couple literally made in heaven because of the character that they possess. Now, in your outline there in your bulletin, if you'll notice on the right side, uh, we have four episodes, four scenes, four acts, if you will, that I want to help us sort of think about it like hangers to hang clothes on. Points are always like hangers to hang thoughts on. So notice these four points. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, Naomi's arrangement. There's an arrangement that's about to be made here. Notice verse 1, them. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Notice, may I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, you can really fly by that verse and not take notice that there's an internal change going on in Naomi. Up to this point, Naomi has been a very self-absorbed individual. It's been really about her. Now, I know you say, Jordan, be easy on her. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She's lost a lot. And I'm being easy on her. But, it, it, but it's remiss to simply say she's been very self-absorbed. It's really been about her. And, and God has used Ruth to help her, but she's been very self-absorbed. But what you see here is that she's beginning to bud out a little bit, and she's beginning to say to Ruth now, I want to seek rest for you. I want to seek good for you. But as we noted chapter 2, God had not forgotten Naomi. Remember, she said, God forgot me. God has turned against me. I mean, look at what I'm going through. He's, his hand is hard against me. And one of the ways that you know that God is working in your life, watch this now, is you begin to be less selfish and more selfless. Have you ever noticed that when you talk to some people, they find a way to get to them? There's probably some bitterness going on in their life. Maybe not. But oftentimes there is. Or they're around people that don't really listen to them, and so they finally found somebody that has an ear, and now they're going to dump the truck. It's not always the case, but selfish people are often stuck in their own misery. Godly people have, have looked to God, and He has opened their hands up as hard as it is to begin to look away from themselves for the good of others. And that's what's going on in the life of Naomi. You remember Naomi said, 
Ruth, find you a husband here. Remember that? Don't go back with me. And now Naomi is actually answering her own prayer request, her own desire. Because Naomi, like mother-in-laws do, began to arrange a plan to put these things into action so that Ruth now will have the well-being of a husband. And remember, a husband in this day really meant everything. It meant protection. It meant provision. It meant all these things. And so um, Naomi is answering her own desire. And don't be surprised that when you desire something good for someone else, God may actually want to use you to be the one to carry out the good desire in their life that you're asking for them. Make sense? And sometimes we're praying God's good for someone, and sometimes we need to look in the mirror and look at our own resources and say, well, do I have or has God blessed me with what I'm asking God to give them? And maybe I need to get outside of myself and selflessly bless them. That's what she's seeking to do here. And so there's a change going on. God is continuing to work in her. God is continuing to say, Naomi, I have not forgotten you, daughter. I have a good plan for you, daughter. But notice verse 2, this mother-in-law's plan. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So she understands the fact that Boaz is their relative. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may think, well, that's kind of weird. Family's going to marry family? Well, this was part of the Israelite culture where a redeemer that was in the same clan of that individual would come and aid their relative. Oftentimes it would be husband dies, the redeemer says, okay, um, family left behind, sell your property, me the redeemer, I'll buy it, say for in our day it was $250,000, I'll buy it, I'll then give you the money that I made from you and then you can now live. That's called a redeemer. And that's what Naomi is saying here. He's in our clan. Boaz is, he, he, he doesn't have to do this, but he could be the redeemer. Now, Boaz is not bound to this, by the way, because he's not Elimelech's brother. He doesn't have to do this. He's not bound to do this. But he could do it, given the fact that he meets all the requirements. Now, notice too, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Well, how does Naomi know this bit of information? How in the world would she know that? Well, we don't know, but like many mother-in-laws, and mother-in-laws, I'm not picking on you at all. It's just oftentimes you make your business to know what sometimes maybe you shouldn't know. But she knew. She knew. She figured out this is where it's going to be. This is how it's going to happen. Now, this threshing floor is a process that would often take place at night. And so, when you go to the House of Bread, Costco, or somewhere else, your grain's already in the package called flour, right? Well, in this day, to make their bread and get their bread, they would have to do a threshing. So, they would get the grain, put it on the threshing floor, stomp it out. Usually in the evening, because the wind's up in Israel in the evening, you would throw it up in the air, and then they would have some kind of little screen-type thing, and the chaff would blow by, and this screen thing would, would catch all of the harvest, and that became the grain that then would be processed to make flour, to make bread, and so on, and so on, and so forth. So that's what's going on here. This threshing floor, um, this was a very public place, by the way. Um, this was a very festive place. This was a celebrated place. I mean, again, this is the city where, where people got their food. I mean, it really is the place where you had to have bread to eat. This is where you get bread. So the town would often gather there during harvest time. Now, 
when you have parties without God, you know, when people party or celebrate without God, it will normally give itself to all kinds of immorality. Amen? Well, prostitution is a big deal right here. Because often these farmers would stay the night and they would protect their grain, but then women of the night would come around. And this was a place of great immorality where all kinds of celebrative sexual immorality would take place. And you got to say this about Naomi, don't you? She really trusts God to send her daughter-in-law into this. She really trusts Boaz, too, to know that he's not going to take advantage of her and he's going to do the godly thing when she, Ruth, is going to be in a very vulnerable position in a moment. But I want you to notice verse 3 because she gives a sevenfold practical plan. Naomi gives a sevenfold plan here. Here's what you need to do when you see him. Notice, wash. Take a bath, would you? It's always good to bathe when you're pursuing a mate. It's always good to bathe, and that's what she says first. Take a bath. Second of all, anoint yourself. Put on some perfume. Now, they didn't have dove for women, but they did have essential oils. Um, so she tells Ruth to put on some of that, I don't know, maybe midnight Moabite. I don't know what they call it. <laughs> Just put a little dab on. And then put on your cloak. This was a cultural way of presenting yourself as a bride. So take a bath. Put on your midnight Moabitess and put on your cloak. Again, we don't know particularly what this cloak looked like. Culturally speaking, all the commentators agree this was just a simple way, some physical way of, of saying, this cloak, I want to be your bride. Now, I want, you to, I want to say this, though. Naomi's goal here is not just for Ruth to look alluring, but it does include that. It does include that. And it's not wrong or unspiritual to want to look nice. Now, you can definitely overdo it at the neglect of your internal. We know 1 Peter chapter 3 makes it very clear that the internal character, the beauty, there's an inward garment that not just women but all of us should pursue from the inside out, that our character can certainly overdo it, but there's nothing wrong with looking nice. We must remember the Bible has a category for beauty. We know that Joseph was a handsome man, watch this, both in form and in appearance, which meant he took care of himself. He was really, he was easy on the eyes, Joseph. Not just in his form, but the way that he dressed and carried himself. In the Song of Solomon, it says that the, the husband had an eye for the physical features of his wife. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says that husbands should be satisfied with the physical features of their wife. The Apostle Paul would say that physical fitness has some value. So physical fitness and value and taking care of yourself on the outside, as one man often tells me, Jordan, holiness does not mean frumpiness. Or holiness doesn't mean sloppiness. Now, I'm not going to get into the different preferences of what you think should wear and clothes, but I'm just simply saying, taking care of your external 
There's nothing unspiritual about that. There's nothing wrong with that. The only way it becomes wrong is as if it becomes an idol and you begin to worship the way you look and you begin to dress for the, the applause of other people rather than seeking to steward the, relation, or the, 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 the features that God has given you. And I'm going to stop before I get myself into a really big hole. But there's nothing wrong with external beauty, health, and fitness. And that's what Naomi is saying here. Look nice. Put perfume on. Take a bath. And go down three to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, Boaz, until he's finished eating and drinking. Always a great idea to approach a guy after he's ate and drank. Picture here is Boaz is enjoying God's gift of creation but he's enjoying it to God's glory. After a hard day's work, a good meal, probably a glass of wine, teetotalers, we could talk about that, but probably what he's doing. So the scene is set here for something really bad to happen, okay? Something really bad could happen here between Boaz and Ruth. Only if the gifts God has given are not abused. So Naomi says, don't approach him till he's eight and till he's drink. Now notice four, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. This is really important. He says, make sure it's Boaz, okay? Make sure. There's lots of, lots of guys probably here threshing. So he says, just make sure that you're going to uncover the feet of Boaz. If you uncover someone else, this is not going to be good. Look for Boaz. Notice, then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. Probably this uncovering of feet, is a non-verbal gesture of saying, marry me. Now, Ruth is going to make this non-verbal gesture verbal very soon. But for now, she's telling him, take me as your bride. And he will tell you, notice, what to do. Again, Naomi is putting a lot of trust here in Boaz. All right? A lot of trust. The man's ate, the man's drank, the man's doing well. And here comes this Moabite princess at his feet, uncovers his feet. The, the, the stereotypical male could have either abused her, taken advantage of her, shamed her before the, the public and said, who is this woman? Or he could have used her, her forwardness here as a license to sin. Now, we could do a whole chat here about reading narrative in the Bible, and I would never tell Eden to do this, by the way. I would never give Eden this approach. So this is not a, a license to say, well, this is how you should approach, you know, Eden, go find a man and start uncovering people's feet. Again, you have to remember, narrative in the Bible does not always mean it's prescribing something. Sometimes it's just describing something. And right now, this is a description, not prescription. This is describing it, not prescribing that we do it. I think it's clear that you need to know to do that because people will often take narrative in the Bible and then make it the principle for their life. That's never how you're supposed to read narrative, okay? You're reading narrative because you're reading a lot of cultural things in here. There's some things that she's doing here that biblical scholars don't even know what in the world is going on here. They're guessing at some point. So don't take this as a prescription for how you're going to pursue relationship, particularly if you're a young lady. This forwardness here and all that she's doing, this is not me saying do this. 
but it's me trying to be faithful to the biblical text and recognize there's a Jewish culture that you don't live in. Amen? So how will Boaz respond? Well, notice in verse 6, Ruth's aspiration. This is the second point. Ruth's aspiration. Because we're kind of left on a cliffhanger here. Ruth has done all of this, and now it's like, well, how's Boaz going to respond? Well, notice, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the heap, at the end of the heap of grain, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She came in all stealth, ninja-like, secretly, as one translation puts it. Notice, at midnight... The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Hey, you do, do you feel the tension here? What on the earth is a woman doing laying at his feet? That's what you should feel. So Boaz feels the air hit his feet. I think that'd wake me up. Would it wake you up? I don't like sleeping with cold feet. Anybody else? So this cold Israeli air hits his feet, and he said, who are you? So he doesn't recognize her. Remember, he's laid eyes on her before. He know, he, th- th- they've chatted before in chapter 2, but he doesn't recognize her. Again, middle of the night, you're sleepy. Sometimes you probably shouldn't say a whole lot when you get up, right? You, don't, you can't see straight, think straight. That's kind of what's going on here. And she answered, I'm Ruth. And notice she gives herself this title, your servant, your servant. Now, you may not pick up on that, but you remember back in chapter 2, she told Boaz, I'm not worthy to be your servant. Remember that? Now, all of a sudden, she switched her tone, and she says, who am I? I am your servant. And you know what she's saying with that? She's saying, I am one of the same status of any kind of woman in this town that you would marry. That's what she's saying. I have the same status. All these women around here, I'm just like them. I'm your servant. Notice she says, spread your wings over, notice again, your servant. Again, this is an idiom for marriage. Um, She's asking Boaz to marry her. She's not interested in some dirty one-night stand. She's not like her ancestors from Moab. Read Genesis 19 and see how the Moabite nation came. Lot and his daughters, you remember that whole episode? That's where the Moabites came from, that relationship. But she's not like them. She's, She's a different kind of gal. You know, in, in, in our modern-day vernacular, what she's telling Boaz is put a ring on it. That's what she's saying. Previously, chapter 1, um, she sought, Ruth did, refuge, remember, under the wings of the Lord. Now she says, Boaz, will you be part of God's provision in my life? Will you take care of me and my mother-in-law? Will you care for us? Will you provide for us? Spread your wings and be my husband. For you, he said... You are a redeemer. Now, something, remember, notice, a redeemer. She could have said, you're my redeemer, but that wouldn't be technically true. She meets the, he meets the qualifications, but he's not actually her redeemer. We're going to see there's actually someone who's a closer kin who should be the redeemer. We'll see that in a moment. But for now, just note, he doesn't have to do this, but he can do it. It's really up to him. So, know it, so there's the arrangement, there's the aspiration. Now, I want you to see... Boaz's agreement, agreement in verse 10. And he said to, to, to Ruth, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Notice the word daughter. It's the idea, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Now, you know, husbands, I don't, wouldn't encourage you to call your wife your daughter. Say, come here, daughter, I'll take care of you. 
Again, there's a cultural thing going on here. Boaz says, you're going to be my daughter. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to inherit the beneficiaries of all that I have. But this does not turn into a steamy moment of passion. This is a worship service. These are two people who love the Lord, who in a moment of, they could have a really steamy moment. Notice what he says. Or, be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. May you be blessed by the Lord. Notice, you made this last kindness greater than the first. Now, the first kindness was what? Well, the first kindness was leaving Moab, friends. Leaving Moab and caring for her mother-in-law and coming all the way back to Israel to care. That was a big kindness. And Boaz says, but this kindness is even greater. And you know what he's referring to? He's referring to the fact that Ruth is not just saying, take care of me. She's actually saying, take care of my mother-in-law too. And Boaz gets that. What you're asking me to do is to not just care for you, but actually take your whole family on. And that kindness is greater than the fact that you left all that you knew in Moab and came all the way here to Bethlehem to take care of your mother-in-law. Boaz says, I understand this kindness is much better than the first. In that, also, you've not gone after young men. So what does that probably tell us about Boaz? This is an older guy. This is an older man. So Boaz is an older man, notice, whether poor or rich. And now, 11, my daughter, again, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Notice Boaz doesn't need to really pray about it, think about it, seek counsel on it. He's just like, here's my wings, baby. I'll, I'll cover you. Now, here's the thing. I think the reason he's so ready is because he's been thinking about it. That's my speculation. It's not revelation, okay? That's my speculation. It's not revelation. My speculation is that Boaz has been thinking about Ruth since that whole thing went down in chapter 2, and we see the divine hand of God here as well, do we not? His sovereign hand over this marriage is he has Boaz ready so that when she says, Cut, spread your wings, he says, here they are, glad to do it. Notice, and now my daughter, don't fear, I will do what you ask, for all my fellow townsmen, they know that you're a worthy woman. How do they know that? I mean, she had not been there that long. I mean, you talk about a woman making an impact on a, in a small town. In a, you know how hard it is? If you ever lived in a small town, friends? I grew up in a town of uh, 1,900 people. Ember and I graduated with 36 people. She was closer to one. I was closer to 36. But I'm going to tell you something. In a small town, if you've never done the small town life, it, it, it is, it is a, uh, it's a blessing and it can be a curse. From the sense of everybody knows everything about everybody, and if they don't know, they'll ask somebody, and they'll it just it's 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 beautiful, and it's messy. And this is what makes this couple such a great match. Remember chapter two, verse one. It says Boaz was a worthy man, and now Boaz says, "I've heard the same thing about you." Everybody in town knows Ruth that you're a worthy woman. Now catch this, friends. Proverbs thirty-one. Um, you know the the uh, the Proverbs thirty-one woman that we often hear about on Mother's Day. Um, she was a virtuous woman, same Hebrew word as this Hebrew word, worthy woman. That Proverbs 31 woman, it says, was known in the town as a virtuous woman. So we could say Ruth was the original Proverbs 31 woman. Ruth was the Proverbs 31 woman before it became a thing. And now, verse 12, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer greater than I, so there's a closer relative. Remain tonight, 13, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, that other one who's actually became more of a duty, good, let him do it. 
But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. One way or another, Ruth, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to have a redeemer. Notice how he, he puts her at ease. He's protecting her. He's resolving here to, to finish the mission. I'm going to take care of you, Ruth. So rest. So there's the arrangement. There's the aspiration. There's the agreement. And finally, Boaz's affordment. This is what it's going to cost him. So 14, she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Remember, small town life. He's trying to preserve her dignity. He wants everyone to know she's not a, a, a harlot like a lot of other women are around here. So don't be talking about her. He wants to cover her. He doesn't want gossip around the town about her. He says before the sun comes up, get leave so that nobody knows this even happened. Notice how he's going over and beyond to protect her dignity, to protect her worth, to protect her value. I mean, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man Boaz is. Then he adds a parting gift, and he said, bring what you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. Now, we don't know what this garment was, but it had to be sturdy. Because notice, he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, 60 to 90 pounds of grain. Again, this Moabitess has some muscles. All right, 60 to 90 pounds, put it out. Remember, she carried an ephah back in chapter 1. We said she probably did CrossFit. For her to be able to take that and carry it clear across the ancient world. So this Moabitess was, she, 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 she had some muscle. But, but notice, then she went into the city. Remember, she's toting all this. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi, how did you fare, my daughter? Now, the translators want to smooth this over. But actually, what she's saying is, is who are you? Who are you? Who are you? In other words, has your status changed? Did he marry you? Did he put a ring on it? Are you an item? Is he going to take care of us? That, that's really what she's asking. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed. Now, friends, underline that word empty, because you remember chapter one, she said, I left full and I came back, what? Empty. And now Boaz is saying, listen, Naomi, you're not empty. You're full. You're full. God's taking care of you. God has a plan for you. You thought God had stripped you of all of that. Well, he did, but he had a plan. And now he's going to use Boaz to bring back all this food. And now, Naomi, she feels full. God has not forgotten you now, Naomi. Now, practical advice for husbands. Take care of your mother-in-law. She'll be glad. And I would like to suggest you'll be glad. She replied, 18, wait, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but he'll settle the matter today. So notice the switch here. The beginning of the chapter, she said, Ruth, you got to act. Here's seven things you got to do. But now she's saying, Ruth, you've done everything you can. Now you got to wait. And really embedded in that statement is, Ruth, you got to wait on the Lord. You've done everything you can do. We've, we've now got to wait on the Lord. We've got to trust the Lord that God will lead Boaz to do 
what, 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 what is best. It's a beautiful picture here, friends. You remember I told you Boaz is a lot like Jesus. For Jesus, too, came to settle a matter, did he not? Jesus, too, came to settle a sin matter that we all have. Every one of us in this room and watching online, we are all in need of redemption. Redemption. You need to be redeemed. Say this, I need, one more time, I need to be redeemed. And the reason you need to be redeemed is because the Bible says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means every single one of us in this room are born guilty before God, that God, your sin is hanging over you. And if you, you die in that sin, then you will forever be guilty before God under His retribution forever. And yet this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to be a redeemer. The word redeem means to buy out, to buy out. What Jesus came to do is to purchase a people for himself. How is he going to do that? By sacrificing his own body on the tree in the place of sinners like you and me, rose from the dead on the third day, and now he has said, anyone who would call upon me, I will redeem them, I will save them, and I will take them one day to glory with me. See, Boaz is like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. For only Jesus came to fully redeem a cursed humanity. And only Jesus came to pay the price to redeem us, so watch this, so that we wouldn't be slaves to sin temporally and we would not live under the consequences of our sin eternally. That's what he came to do. And so today, there's great hope for you, dear friend. If you know Jesus as your redeemer, you have the power to say no to sin and yes to him. How's it going? The sins in your life, Are you walking in freedom, those? Are you looking to the Redeemer? And if you're here and and you've never asked Jesus to be your Redeemer, and I think that that could help settle the sheep from the goats in this room, is to simply ask yourself this question. Have I ever asked God via Jesus to redeem me? Have I ever asked Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin? Have I ever done that? If you've not done that, then God is holding you liable for all of your sins. And one day you'll stand before him and all those sins in like a a synergistic smoothie will 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 be whipped up together and the fury of God's wrath will be poured on you, and not just for a day, friend, but for all of eternity. And this is why Jesus came. My friends, let us not lose sight of the personal and the particular love of Jesus. The personal, in other words, Jesus loved a people for himself. And you say, well, am I of his people? Well, the only question is, have you asked him to redeem you? And if you have, you are his people. If you are not, you are not his people. But there is, the offer still stands today. You can call upon his name right now. You can call upon his name and you can say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I recognize that I have sinned against you and only Jesus can save. Let's all remember this love story. And let's tell the world about this love story, who's begging for a real love story. And finally, let's say with William Cowper, redeeming love has been my theme, and it will be till I die. Isn't it good, friends, to be the redeemed people of God, that Jesus bought us, that we are no longer slaves, but we are free now in Christ, 
to live for Him, to love Him, and to do it for all of eternity. Lord Jesus, thank You for redeeming us out of Your great love for us. For we are Your bride. We are Your spotless bride. We have a white gown on. You have purified us. You have made us what we are not. You have made us holy. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us by your grace to live in light of our great redemption, that we would pursue a life of godliness, a life of a holiness that brings you glory. Thank you for the example of Ruth, the example of Boaz, the purity that they walked in. God, I, I pray for those in this room that are in dating relationships and they are not married. There is no ring on no finger. There is no covenant in place. And I pray for sexual purity, not just physically but mentally, that they would recommit themselves to purity. For your word says to flee sexual immorality because, Lord, not only does it bring you disgrace, does it grieve you, but Lord, it hurts us to not walk in sexual purity. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we would recommit ourselves to purity, to doing the right thing in your eyes, even when it costs us, that we would be faithful, Lord, to live a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called, prayed for married couples in this room, Lord, that you would restore the joy of their marriage in you, that they would love you and they would love each other, and we would do it, Lord, for your glory. We would do it for the good of our own relationship. We would do it for the good of our children. We would do it for the good of our church. We would do it for the good of greater society, that we would give an accurate picture to the world of the gospel in marriage. Lord Jesus, would you deepen our gratitude most of all for you rescuing us from our sin, that temporally, Lord, we can win the war with sin, or the battle rather, the war has been won, but we can win the battle. And thank you, Lord, that you'll never bring our sin up from an eternal judgment standpoint, because in Jesus, he absorbed the fuel, full fury of your wrath and so, Lord, that, that, that compels us to ask you to save those right now who are still stuck in their sins. Help them see that there is a Redeemer, God, your very own Son. We say thank you, O oh, our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit here on earth until the work is done. So I pray, Lord, that you would seal these truths in our mind, that we would be a people and that we would act this week like we have been redeemed because we have. We ask it in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me and let's respond in songs.